The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Soldiers Lost in Time, a young hero who must question everything and the fight against an alien invasion. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirerod. This week, Griffin Barber once again sits down with Simon R. Green to discuss an Ishmael Jones novel. If you didn't catch these gentlemen in conversation about the dark side of the road a few weeks back, head over to Bain.com or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a listen or a watch. This time, Barber and Green talk about new series entry, Haunted by the Past. But first, the news. December is just around the corner, and the December mass markets have hit bookstore shelves everywhere. First up, we have That Was Now, This Is Then by Michael Z. Williamson. Then, First Lieutenant Sean Elliott and his nine other mixed-service U.S. soldiers on a convoy in Afghanistan suddenly found themselves thrown back to Earth's Paleolithic age. They were not alone. Displaced Romans, Neolithic Europeans, and more appeared. Some became allies, some deadly foes. Against all odds, the team survived and found a way back to the 21st century, tattered but triumphant. Now... The Bicos, humans from the far future whose meddling caused the first rift, have stranded another group of American soldiers in the ancient past. They need Elliot's team of time-toughened veterans to return to the Paleolithic and gather these displaced soldiers for recovery. Elliot's team knows that prehistory is a hard place to live and an easy place to die. In the end, only inventiveness, grit, and a thirst for freedom from the fickle tides of time can keep the team alive and fighting to save their displaced brothers and sisters in arms, and to find a way back to the place and time they call home. Next up, we have This Broken World by Charles E. Gannon. Since boyhood, Druidane expected he'd command an elite legion and become the leader his father predicted he would be. Fate had other plans. Assigned to a small group of outriders tasked with watching nearby kingdoms, Druidin discovers that the larger world is riddled with impossibilities. How do humanoid raiders, known as the Bent, suffer staggering losses and yet return as a vast horde every decade? How do multi-ton dragons fly? How have fossils formed in a world which Sacris insists has existed for only 10 millennia? To solve these mysteries, Druidin journeys into the dank warrens of the Bent, seeks out a dragon's lair, and ventures into long-buried ruins in search of ancient scrolls. But Druidin's most lethal enemies might lurk in even more unusual places, the temples and council chambers of his own homeland. And finally, we have The Space-Time War by Les Johnson. Humanity has finally made it to the stars. Colony worlds thrive, and there is general peace among the settled systems. Until now. Ships of an advanced design appear in colonial systems. 
colonies and their populations are obliterated. Once settled words are rendered radioactive wastelands. Earth herself lies defenseless before the marauding enemy. Standing against the invasion are British Navy Space Captain Winslow Price and Anika Ahuja of the Indian Space Forces. They are on a quest that will plumb the scientific wells of existence itself, where the primordial knot of space-time may be unraveling. Price and Ahuja are sworn to do whatever it takes to defend Earth, even if it pushes each to the brink of life and death in battle, even if it leads beyond space and time and to the edge of ultimate possibility. That's That Was Now, This Is Then, This Broken World, and The Space-Time War, all available in mass market paperback now. And that's it for the news. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Simon R. Green is, is an established urban fantasy author with more than two decades of excellence in writing to his credit. In that time, he's written media tie-ins, several successful series in space opera, fantasy, and the Ishmael Jones series of urban fantasy tales we are here to talk about today. The latest in the series, Haunted by the Past, forthcoming from Bain Books, is an exciting new entry in the Ishmael Jones books. Hello and welcome, Simon. Good to be here. So, as usual, as you probably remember from last time, the hardest question comes first. What was the coolest aspect of the haunted of haunted by the past for you? I think it's basically that the central idea is you've got a murder mystery set in what might or might not turn out to be a haunted house. <laughs> Now, I've done this before with an earlier Ishmael Jones book, which was The House on Widow's Hill. And I was so fascinated by how that worked out, I thought, let's take the same idea, but work it from a completely different viewpoint and a completely different storyline. And that led me to Haunted by the Past. The whole point of, of, of any ghost story is that the past doesn't really go away. We're all of us shaped by the past that produced us. And it continues to affect how we deal with the life we live. And a ghost works both as a metaphor for that and as an actual case of the past intruding into the present and changing it. So when you put that on the one hand and a murder mystery on the other and you put the two together, then you can have a lot of fun. And I like the clash between the straightforward, you've got the horror elements, you've got the uh, mystery elements, um, because... I'm writing it, you've got the comedy element. One of my all-time favorite movies, which I saw back when I was, I don't know, 10, 11 years old, was the original um, Cat in the Canary with Bob Hope, which I loved then and love now, right. because the horror and, and mystery elements are done perfectly straight, but it has a comedy character reacting to it and pointing out some of the stranger elements of what's going on. Right. That had a huge impact on me, and I'm still writing that kind of story even now, putting these things together just for the fun of it. <laughs> What's interesting that you would say that is that the uh, the comedy shines through in the in the moments and the and the talking back and forth between the uh, primary characters uh, Ishmael and Penny um, that uh, is 
it's fun to see how they react to the uh, events of the story, especially those that are a little bit more um, uh, perhaps uh, supernatural in their uh, origin. Um, so you, it sounds like you've uh, enjoyed that aspect of, of writing the previous book, which you actually mentioned as one of the cases that uh, Penny and Ishmael investigated. Um, did you kind of set out to, I'm going to do that again, or uh, and do it a different right. way? Um, the House on Widow's Hill was a very, came from a, a very straightforward idea that Ishmael and Penny are working with a group of people to investigate whether a house is actually haunted or not. One of the characters gets killed, and Ishmael walks into the room and finds the ghost of the murdered person standing over his own body saying, what the hell just happened? And Ishmael has to work with the ghost of the victim to work out who killed him. So you've got an actual supernatural element going on. So I thought some books later, wouldn't it be fun to again put these characters in what appears to be a haunted house, and then have to work out, is this actually a haunted house or not? Right. Or is somebody there using the story of the haunted elements to disguise their own motives? Or is right. there something else going on? And this gives you levels to complicate the mystery and make it that much more fun. And there was quite a bit of uh, entertainment there for us. Um, so Haunted by the Past has at its heart a pair of experienced investigators who are also a romantic couple. Uh, how has that relationship grown and changed over the course of the series? Well, we're now in the 11th book. I mean, I wrote it as a one-off originally, but they, the characters caught on. People liked them so much that they said, we want more books, and I've been writing them for years now. And what I love about continuing the series is watching Ishmael and Penny continue to grow and change as they react to the various things they've done, as they continue in their relationship. As I've said this before, the whole point of Ishmael is that he has his background of, he is someone who used to be an alien and is now human, but has no memory of being an alien. But there's just enough there that he is the, the permanent outsider. Penny is his first long-time human relationship, and this is changing him. If you look at the way he reacts to uh, the world in the first book, and in the later books, and in the current book, you can see he's slowly becoming more human, and he's also becoming more worried about what his alien aspect means to his future with Penny. Can he have a future with Penny, and what kind of future? And seeing the two of them continue to grow and change throughout the book is, I think, what keeps me going and keeps me wanting to write more books. Well, that's neat. She, they, I, you know, having been introduced to her in the first novel not too long ago for me, uh, it was uh, it's interesting to see at this other end of that uh, relationship uh, and being uncertain as to how many years have passed, but you know, figuring there's been a few. Uh, it's also entertaining to see her kind of driving uh, the bus on occasion with, with him, uh, you know, like as far as the investigation is concerned and also just about, uh, you know, the, that uh, long-term uh, marriage of sorts or partnership of sorts that uh, where, you know, hey, this, we're going to wait for me to do my, uh, get my hat on and uh, the popper boots and do I wear the hat down to do this confrontation, that kind of thing was uh, very entertaining uh, Given the, uh... It's always important to me 
that Penny isn't Ishmael's sidekick. She's his equal partner. The right. two of them bring things to uh, the, 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 the partnership that, that the other one can't. Uh, again, we're going back to when I was young, but one of my favorite TV shows was the television show The Avengers with Patrick Nee and Diana Rigg, right. which was in the 60s, and very unusually, um, Diana Rigg was his exact equal. She was just as strong, just as much the action, just as much the, uh, the, the sharp, intelligent mind. Right. And I watched this as younger, and I just thought, yes, that is exactly right. And I've been doing that kind of partnership ever since throughout the various series I do. But Ishmael and Penny, I always say, they are stronger together than they could ever be apart. They complement each other. Between the two of them, they can do things that keep the, uh, the mystery moving, that, that keep the, uh, the excitement going. Right. So uh, we have, just like in uh, uh, the dark side of the street, we have, uh, of the uh, we have the uh, a pretty large cast of characters that they interact with, uh, although not as large as that first novel. Um, which character in Haunted by the Past surprised you? I think the main one is Arthur Glenbury. He's the, uh, the leader of the family who had taken over this house. It's their last chance, really, to, to make a go, not just of, of, of uh, a career, but of their marriage and of their family. If Arthur can't make this work, it's all going to fall apart, so the pressure's all on him. When I first introduced him, I saw him as a fairly cold and distant character. But as the book progressed and I discovered more about his history, what made him the way he is, he became really fascinating. He is a man who is literally haunted by his personal past in exactly the same way that the family home is haunted by the, the history of the family. And as I went through the book, when we finally get to the big reveal as to why he is the way he is, I think it's a really shocking moment, and it makes you look at him in a completely different way. All right. So uh, in a similar vein, then, which character from Haunted by the Past would you want to avoid like the plague? I don't know avoid, but the one who scares the hell out of me is his wife. She is really like a force of nature. She's the one who dominates him, who dominates the family, because after Arthur had been working in the city and it had all fallen apart and they'd retreated to this one last chance to make it work, she's the driving force. She keeps everything moving. But at the same time, you can see as the book goes on, in a sense, she's out of her depth. She doesn't understand about the history of the family. She doesn't understand about the um, supernatural element of the house and more and more she's being kept off foot pushed back off balance and she's fighting as hard as she knows to hold her family together to keep things working and she's constantly let's just say that the, the angrier she gets and the more she fights the worse really things get you really do not want to be about this woman when she's really starting to strike out right so, uh, which characters would you want as an ally, aside from, of course, Penny and, and uh, Ishmael? Again, this, this is, it's a tricky one. I would say any of the family, because you've got husband, wife, and the daughter, Ellen, and all of them, in their own way, are being as strong as they know how. They're in a terrible situation. 
their backs against the wall, and every single one of them is fighting as hard as they know how to make this work. Ellen, when she's first introduced, seems to be a typical sulky teenager who doesn't want to have much to do with her parents, who doesn't even want to come out of her, her room. She's been dragged away from the life she knew in London. She's left her friends behind. She's stuck in a, in a small town at the back of beyond. She hates it. But when she realizes that, you know, the threat that her family is facing, she's the one who comes forward and says, I'm not having this. I will fight for my family. And yeah, she and she's, really she's, not just, she's not suffering from that just typical teenage angst. The people in the town really don't like uh, the Glenberry yeah, I mean, line. And, and, uh, she's not a typical teenager people. who thinks the world is out to get her. The world really is out to get her in many ways. Yeah, certainly but in that village. Yeah, instead of just sulking and crying in the background, she comes out fighting. I love that. So some aspects of Haunted by the Past are quite similar to the first book in the series, yet outcomes are quite different. Uh, what approach do you take to keep the series fresh after so many books? One of the things that I particularly like about the series is that it's quite openly based on the Agatha Christie style of murder mystery. But you take a group of people, put them in an isolated place, and then throw something really unexpected into the water and see how everybody copes with it. And really, like Agatha Christie, you can run an endless number of variations on the theme. The struggle is, is to keep it fresh, and the way you do it is by introducing different kinds of characters, different kinds of settings, different kinds of mystery. One of the things I've always been most fond of is not just the who done it, but the what is going on style of mystery. So I've just got to work out the simple mechanics of who killed thing and why. There's a whole sense of you're not just in the story you think you're in. Everybody's got their own background. They've got their own motives. They're coming to it for their own reasons. And working out what's going on is actually more important than who killed thing. One leads to the other. But it shapes the story so much more. Like I said, we're now in the 11th book, and... Every time I sit down to do a new Ishmael, I say, okay, what have I done before? Let's make a list. Let's not do that again. We can use similar settings. As I said, this is the second time I've dealt with uh, a murder mystery in what appears to be a haunted house. But this is a completely new take on the material. And I think the way you do it is you work very hard to come up with new and different kinds of characters that you haven't done before and say, right, Let's put these characters together in a setting and let's see what that does to the story. And I think it's fair to say that I'm still finding different things to do and fresh ways to do it. So there is a deeply sinister manner at the heart of the story, almost a character in and of itself. Uh, is there a particular manner you had in mind as a model for the events of Wanted by the Past? Well, yes. Um, I've said before that I, uh, I'm part of a local drama group, and I've done open-air Shakespeare for like, some, God, it must be over 30 years now, uh, in various uh, grounds of manor houses in Bradford Navon, in Melksham, in Farley Castle, and um, I've taken a bit here and a bit there. Places I've been that impressed me, stories, histories, things like that. 
Uh, we have uh, a 13th century type barn in the middle of Bradford Maven, where I've done several Shakespeare's, which is a wonderful old setting. And there are stories and legends attached to it, which, again, you, you, you cherry pick what you want, put things together, and you can find things you can use. Um, Memory Manor, I think, was inspired by two different places I've used. Uh, one was Westbury Manor and one was uh, Moncton Farley Manor, which have wonderful grounds, wonderful old houses, stories, legends, and so on. You put it all together, you take the bits you need, and you get all kinds of, of influences and ideas. Um, the bit about the statues in the garden mm-hmm. in the book, uh, the story that perhaps at night the statues come to night and dance together in the grounds. That's an actual legend from a town not far from here. And I quite deliberately took that and said, let's see where we can go with that. Because I quite like the idea that at night they will come up to the windows and look in to see what the living are doing. That's a genuinely spooky thought. Um, The house itself... Is based it, also, on, it also lends the familiar to, to those who know that story. They can uh, place mm, themselves there. Yeah, the, the house, um, I've known quite a few houses in and around Bradford, which the people still live in them, but they can't keep up the whole house. It's simply too expensive. So there's an area where people live in, and it's perfectly normal. And then there are whole sections which no one's lived in for decades. They're just left empty. And I like that contrast that you can live in a house where parts of it have been abandoned, but they're still, they still have a history. Things happen there. People live there. There are stories and legends about the people who live there, which affect the people who live there now. And that's part of why we treasure ghost stories. They tell us about our families, our pasts, our histories. Very cool. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, the show Time Team, uh, which the long history and legends regarding the well on the manor property uh, reminded me of. Uh, Has that show had any influence on you or the details of the manors and other places that uh, your stories take place in? Yeah, I've seen quite a few episodes. There's always something interesting in them. Um, I think partly when, when I'm looking at old places, what I like to think about it is, 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 is to look at the way that, again, the, the stories, the histories, the legends, the families, it doesn't stop then. It continues to have an effect on the, peop- on the people who are there now and the people who are interested in them. The time team would, you know, would dig down and find aspects of the past. The people have forgotten and say, look, this is what shaped the family. This is what shaped the people who live there. And it's, it's really wonderful to, to, to look at the details and say that for all the differences between the past and the present, people then and people now were still very similar. We haven't changed that much. And we, we still react to those old stories and say, yes, I recognize these people. I understand why they did this. It's still worth writing about. Absolutely. And it's fertile ground to inspire you, too, I, I would think. I would say, when people ask me when they go to conventions, you know, do you do a lot of research? 
And I always say the same thing. I do a lot of research in every book I do. I do extensive research, and then I make things up. Right. It's important to be inspired by your research, but you should never let it dictate to you. Just take the bits you like and then work with them. Put your imagination to work and take it in new directions. Right. Absolutely. Um, and it works out, in, and it certainly works out in Haunted by the Past. I, I, like I said, the well was uh, something I was uh, focused on early in the story and, and continued to remain kind of focused about uh, that particular mystery because it's a, it was almost a, a nested mystery within the mystery, uh, given that it had its own legendary past. The idea of the wishing well has has become this like twee fairy story these days. You know, you throw a coin and, and make a wish. It didn't used to be that. If you go back and look at the original stories of the well, you're going back to pre-Christian, you're going back to pagan times. These yep. were sites of sacrifice, blood sacrifice. And they were places that were worshipped and feared and used in, in equal measure. And although we look at them now in this rather twee way, actually you look at the what the wells were originally, they were much more scary things. They were dangerous things. And of course, once you take that aspect on, you've got a whole new feel that adds to the story. Absolutely. So uh, Haunted by the Past has some characters with a tough family history. Uh, did you plan this as you set out to write the story, or did it result from the characters themselves kind of telling you what was going on with them? I was interested. I, I chose that particular piece of history for a reason. It's um, a part of history which isn't much remembered now, apart from the, the part of England in which I live, which is the southwest countryside. Basically, Charles II is remembered as a very popular king, and in many ways he was. But his replacement, James II, was not at all popular. He was a Catholic king in a largely Protestant country who made the mistake of trying to be king. And as we know from Charles I, who was executed for doing that, this is not a good idea. Right. And the, the general feeling in the country was we didn't want this guy as king. But the aristocracy were very wary of basically going to war again. We've had one civil war. The aristocracy were very uncertain about another. But there was a rebellion, the Duke of Monmouth's rebellion. Now, the Duke of Monmouth was the probably illegitimate child of Charles II, and thought if he'd been legitimate, he would have been replacement, but he wasn't, and he wasn't. So he launched his own rebellion to replace an unpopular king, but the aristocracy on the whole would not support him. So he went to the peasants and, and raised an army from them, which is why it's often referred to as the Pitchfork Rebellion. There wasn't the money to get them guns and the rest of it, so they were armed with farm implements like scythes and so on. Right. And not surprisingly, when an army of peasants went up against a professional army, they got the hell kicked out of them, and the duke was executed, and that was the end of the rebellion. But what's interesting is, to me in particular, was that when the Duke of Monmouth set up his rebellion, a number of his own illegitimate children arrived and joined his bandwagon and said, hey, we want to be a part of this. And one of them was a distant ancestor of mine. Oh. So, if the Duke of Monmouth had won his rebellion and become king, if he'd acknowledged that child as his legitimate offspring, I would have been distantly related to the throne of England. 
but he didn't, <laughs> and I'm not, not even remotely. But it's a nice what if. Right. So I've always been interested in that particular part of history, and I decided to use that as the background for the book. Where did the hauntings really come from? Where did the supernatural element first start? And it starts with Lord Ravensbrook. He's one of the few aristocrats who's been brought in, who said he's going to support the Monmouth Rebellion. He turns up at Glenbury House to discuss money, influence, and the rest. He walks into the house and is never seen again. He vanishes. So when we've got the start of the book, here in the present day, Lucas Carr walks into the Glenbury House and vanishes. We've got a mirror between the past and the present. The same thing has happened again. Are they linked? Is it supernatural? Is somebody using it? And that is the engine that drives the book. Now, there never was a Lord Ravensburg. He's fiction. But the idea of someone who would walk into a house and vanish, this is one of those stories that recurs throughout history. You can find quite a few references in Charles Fort's various books, where he talks about people who just literally walked around a corner, walked through a door, and were never seen again. And, and these things were never properly explained. Perhaps one of the most famous is the writer Ambrose Bierce, who disappeared and no one has ever worked out why. And he was a really famous person in his time. A lot of people went looking and they found nothing to explain his disappearance. So I took the idea of the disappearance, I took the modern rebellion, I put it all together in the haunted house, and there's the engine that drives the book. <laughs> and quite effectively, too. I, I uh, was wondering about that, whether there was uh, an actual historical uh, representative of uh, Lord Ravensbrook uh, that actually took place in the, in the history. But uh, that's even better that it was a mishmash or a adaptation oh, yeah. of events with, uh, with the creative ideas. Well, uh, so we're on to our penultimate question. Uh, what, aside from its considerable raw entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading Haunted by the Past? A sense that the past is never really over. Things that happen in the past continue to resonate on not just the distant past and hauntings, but our own recent past. One of the great reveals, as I said in the book, is when we find out why Arthur Glenbury is the way he is his personal history. We've got the character Kathleen Voss, who is a local historian brought in to try and make some sense of what's happening in the house. She knows the, uh, the, uh, the, the distant past that, that led to the hauntings. She also knows the recent past of his parents, his family. Back in the 70s, the house was a host for what in those days were called swingers for right. uh, sex parties and so on. And we discovered that what happened then, that generation, had a huge effect on Arthur and on the town and on what's happening now in the house. So our past dictate our present. We never really put behind what's happened to us in the past. It continues to haunt us in the same way that the ghosts haunt the house. It's not just a, a distant metaphor. It's a personal metaphor. Excellent. So last question, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at, and what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read? Well, I'm still hoping to get back to America and do conventions again. I've 
the pandemic put a stop to that for so long, and I really miss it. Um, at the moment, things are still very hesitant. They're still saying, wear masks, keep a distance. That's not a convention. So I'm hoping things will get back to more like normal beginning of next year, and I plan to attend any convention that will have me. And I really want to get stuck back into that again, to do panels, to do questionnaires, to do readings, and just meeting people again. I, I really miss that. As to um, what I'm doing next, at the moment, I'm just finishing the second Jekyll and Hyde book, which is called Hide and Seek. The first book was about whatever happened to all the old monsters, the traditional uh, vampires and werewolves and Frankenstein and mummies. So when I get into the second book, I thought, hmm, whatever happened to all the old aliens, to the Martians and the bug-eyed monsters and the greys? And in the first book, our main characters, Daniel and Tina Hyde, are in the driving seat. In the second book, they're having to come out fighting. They are very much on the back foot. They are very much the underdog, and they're really having to work hard this time. And I think, that really, that makes it actually more fun. I'm just coming to the end of the main draft, and as soon as I do, I go back to the beginning, I start the polishing draft. And I think this one is really going to be a powerhouse of the book. I'm also working on the Gideon Sable mysteries, the, uh, the cuckoo steel things that other people can't, like a ghost clothes or a photo of a city that never existed. I'm doing another book for them. And I've got a proposal that I'm working on for a new epic science fiction novel. One of my best-selling series going back to the 90s was the Deathstalker books, which is me doing space opera, the Star Wars style. And a lot of people have been saying, oh, we really love those books. Why haven't you done them? Well, basically, because I did eight of them and I burned out. <laughs> I just done everything I had to say. Right. But recently, I did a short story for a collection from Bain. And they asked me to do a space opera story. I wrote my first Deathstalker story, story based in the Deathstalker universe for about 25 years. And that seems to have gone down very well. And it made me think, hmm. I may be burned out on Deathstalker, but space opera is still a huge field, and I think I've got a really good idea for stories, so I'm going to work on that, put the proposal to the Bane, and see where we go from there. All right. Which uh, uh, anthology would that be? Pardon? Which anthology oh, would that be? anthology. Uh, let me just have a look. Uh, it's on my shelf, and I will tell you in a second. <laughs> it is... Edited by Christopher Rocchio, and it's yeah. called Sword and Planet. Okay. Yeah, I'm in this last one with uh, Bane Books, uh, World's Long Lost. Uh, I, okay. I, as soon as you started talking about it, I started picking, picking it up to look at, look for your name. I was like, oh, Picky's in there. So, yeah, Sword and Planet. Yeah. It's a good anthology. It's some good solid stories in it. Always. Well, excellent. Well, it's been great talking to you, Simon. I appreciate your time, and uh, I certainly appreciate it being able to read Haunted by the Past before anybody else. And uh, I hope you'll you come back and visit with us again here on the Bane Free Radio Hour. I would love to. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobra's. 
the colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Sitting in his parked car, watching the last rays from the setting sun, Johnny let the anger and frustration drain out of him and wondered what to do next. He had just stormed out of Elise's apartment after their latest fight, the tenth or so since his return. Like the job situation, things with Elise seemed to be getting worse instead of better. Unlike the former, he could only blame himself for the problems in his love life. The sun was completely down by the time he felt capable of driving safely. The sensible thing would be to go home, of course. But the rest of the Moreau family was out to dinner, and the thought of being alone in the house bothered him for some reason. What he needed, he decided, was something that would completely take his mind off his problems. Starting the car, he drove into the center of town where the Raptopia, Cedar Lake's new pleasure center, was located. Johnny had been in pleasure centers on Asgard, both before and after the tour on Adirondack, and by their standards, the Raptopia was decidedly unsophisticated. There were fifteen rooms and galleries, each offering its combination of sensual stimuli for customers to choose from. The choices seemed limited, however, to permutations of the traditional recreations, music, food and drink, mood drugs, light shows, games, and thermal booths. The extreme physical and intellectual ends of the pleasure spectrum, personified by prostitutes and professional conversationalists, were conspicuously absent. Johnny wandered around for a few minutes before settling on a room with a loud music group and wildly flickering light show. Visibility under such conditions was poor, and as long as he kept his distance from the other patrons, he was unlikely to be recognized. Finding a vacant area of the contoured soft floor, he sat down. The music was good, if dated. He'd heard the same songs three years ago in Asgard, and he began to relax as the light and sound swept like a cleansing wave over his mind. So engrossed did he become that he didn't notice the group of teenaged kids that came up behind him until one of them nudged him with the tip of his shoe. "'Hey there, Cobra,' he said as Johnny looked up. "'What's new?' Uh, "'Not much,' Johnny replied cautiously. There were seven of them, he noted, three girls and four boys, all dressed in the current teenage style so deplored by Cedar Lake's more conservative adults. "'Do I know you?' The girls giggled. Nah, another of the boys drawled. We just figured everybody ought to know there's a celebrity here. Let's tell them, huh? Slowly, Johnny rose to his feet to face them. From his new vantage point, he could see that all seven had the shining eyes and rapid breathing of heavy stim drug users. I don't think that's necessary, he said. You want to fight about it? The first boy said, dropping into a caricature of a fighting stance. Come on, Cobra. Show us what you can do. Wordlessly, Johnny turned and walked toward the door, followed by the giggling group. As he reached the exit, the two talkative boys pushed past him and stood in the doorway, blocking it. "'Can't leave till you show us a trick,' one said. Johnny looked him in the eye. 
successfully resisting the urge to bounce the smart mouth off the far wall. Instead, he picked up both boys by their belts, held them high for a moment, and then turned and set them down to the side of the doorway. A gentle push sent them sprawling onto the soft floor. I suggest you all stay here and enjoy the music, he told the rest of the group as they stared at him with wide eyes. Turkey hop, one of the smart mouths muttered. Johnny ignored the apparent insult and strode from the room, confident that they wouldn't follow him. They didn't. But the mood of the evening was broken. Johnny tried two or three other rooms for a few minutes each, hoping to regain the relaxed abandonment he'd felt earlier, but it was no use. And within a quarter hour he was back outside the Raptopia, walking through the cool night air toward his car parked across the street a block away. He'd covered the block and was just starting to cross the road when he became aware of the low hum of an idling car nearby. He turned to look back along the street, and in that instant a car rolling gently along the curb suddenly switched on its lights and, with a squeal of tires, hurtled directly toward him. There was no time for thought or human reaction, but Johnny had no need of either. For the first time since leaving Adirondack, his nanocomputer took control of his body launching it into a flat six-meter dive that took him to the walkway on the far side of the street. He landed on his right shoulder, rolling to absorb the impact, but crashed painfully into a building before he could stop completely. The car roared past, and as it did so, needles of light flashed from Johnny's fingertip lasers to the car's two right-hand tires. The double blowout was audible even over the engine noise. Instantly out of control, the car swerved violently, bounced off two parked cars, and finally crashed broadside into the corner of the building. Aching all over, Johnny got to his feet and ran to the car. Ignoring the gathering crowd, he worked feverishly on the crumpled metal and had the door open by the time a rescue unit arrived. But his effort was in vain. The car's driver was already dead, and his passenger died of internal injuries on the way to the hospital. They were the two teenaged boys who had accosted Johnny in the Raptopia. The sound of his door opening broke Mayor Stillman's train of thought, and he turned from his contemplation of the morning sky in time to see Sutton Fraser closing the door behind him. "'Don't you ever knock?' he asked the city councillor irritably. "'You can stare out the window later,' Fraser said, pulling a chair close to the desk and sitting down. "'Right now we've got to talk.' Stillman sighed. "'Johnny Moreau, you got it. It's been over a week now, Teague, and the tension out there is not going down.' People in my district are still asking why Johnny's not in custody. We've been through this, remember? The legal department in Horizon City has the patroller report. Until they make a decision, we're treating it as self-defense. Oh, come on! You know the kids would have swerved to miss him. That's how that stupid turkey hop is played. Okay, okay, I realize Johnny didn't know that, but did you know he fired on the car after it had passed him? I've got no less than three witnesses now that say that. So have the patrollers. I'll admit I don't understand that part. Maybe it's something from his combat training. Great, Fraser muttered. Stillman's intercom buzzed. Mayor Stillman, there's a Mr. Vanis Darl to see you, his secretary announced. Stillman glanced questioningly at Fraser, who shrugged and shook his head. Send him in, Stillman said. The door opened, and a slender, dark-haired man entered and walked toward the desk. His appearance, clothing, and walk identified him as an off-worlder before he had taken two steps. Uh, Mr. Darl, Stillman said as he and Fraser rose to their feet. 
I'm Mayor Teague Stillman. This is Councillor Sutton Fraser. What can we do for you? Darl produced the gold ID pin. Vanis Darl, representing Komite Saki's home of the Dominion of Man. His voice was slightly accented. Out of the corner of his eye, Stillman saw Fraser stiffen. His own knees felt a little weak. Very honored to meet you, sir. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Darl took the chair Fraser had been sitting in. The counselor moved to a seat farther from the desk, possibly hoping to be less conspicuous there. This is mainly an informal courtesy call, Mr. Stillman, Darl said. However, all of what I'm going to tell you is to be considered confidential dominion business. He waited for both men to nod agreement before continuing. I've just come from Horizon City, where all pending charges against Reserve Cobra Three Johnny Moreau have been ordered dropped. I see, Stillman said. Uh, may I ask why the Central Committee is taking an interest in this case? C-3 Moreau is still technically under Army jurisdiction, since he can be called into active service at any time. Comité Horm has furthermore had a keen interest in the entire Cobra project since its inception. Are you familiar with the incident that Mr. Um, C-3 Moreau was involved in? Yes, and I understand the doubts both you and the planetary authorities have had about the circumstances. However, Moreau cannot be held responsible for his actions at that time. He was under attack and acted accordingly. His combat training is that strong? Not precisely. Darl hesitated. I dislike having to tell you this, as it has been a military secret up until recently, but you need to understand the situation. Have you ever wondered what the name Cobra stands for? Why? Stillman floundered, caught off guard by the question. I assumed it referred to the Earth Snake. Only secondarily. It's an acronym for Computerized Body Reflex Armament. I'm sure you know about the ceramic laminae and servo network and all. You may also know about the nanocomputer implanted just under his brain. This is where the problem originates. You must understand that a soldier, especially a guerrilla in enemy-held territory, needs a good set of combat reflexes if he is to survive. Training can give him some of what he needs, but it takes a long time and has its limits. Therefore, since a computer was going to be necessary for equipment monitoring and fire control anyway, a set of combat reflexes was also programmed in. The bottom line is that Mr. Moreau will react instantly and with very little conscious control to any deadly attack launched at him. In this particular case, the pattern shows clearly that this is what happened. He evaded the initial attack, but was left in a vulnerable position, off his feet and away from cover, and was thus forced to counterattack. Part of the computer's job is to monitor the weapon systems, so it knew the fingertip lasers were all it had left. So it used them. A deathly silence filled the room. Let me get this straight, Stillman said at last. The army made Johnny Moreau into an automated fighting machine who will react lethally to anything that even looks like an attack, and then let him come back to us without making any attempt to change that? The system was designed to defend a soldier in enemy territory, Darl said. It's not nearly as hair-trigger as you seem to imagine. And as for letting him come back like that, there was no other choice. The computer cannot be reprogrammed or removed without risking brain damage. 
What the hell? Fraser had apparently forgotten he was supposed to be courteous to Dominion representatives. What damn idiot came up with that idea? Darl turned to face the counselor. The Central Committee is tolerant of criticism, Mr. Fraser. His voice was even but had an edge to it. But your tone is unacceptable. Fraser refused to shrivel. Never mind that. How did you expect us to cope with him when he reacts to attacks like that? He snorted. Attacks! Two kids playing a game! Use your head, Darl snapped. We couldn't risk having a cobra captured by the troughs and sent back to us with his computer reprogrammed. The cobras were soldiers, first and foremost, and every tool and weapon they had made perfect sense from a military standpoint. Didn't it occur to anyone that the war would be over some day, and that the cobras would be going home to civilian life? Darl's lip might have twitched, but his voice was firm enough. Less powerful equipment might well have cost the Dominion the war, and would certainly have cost many more cobras their lives. At any rate, it's done now, and you'll just have to learn to live with it like everyone else. Stillman frowned. Everyone else? How widespread is this problem? Darl turned back to face the mayor, looking annoyed that he'd let that hint slip out. It's not good, he admitted at last. We hope to keep as many cobras as possible in the service after the war. But all were legally free to leave, and over two hundred did so. Many of those are having trouble of one kind or another. We're trying to help them, but it's difficult to do. People are afraid of them, and that hampers our efforts. Well, can you do anything to help Johnny? Darl shrugged slightly. I don't know. He's an unusual case in that he came back to a small hometown where everyone knew what he was. I suppose it might help to move him to another planet, maybe give him a new name. But people would eventually find out. Cobra strength is hard to hide for long. So are Cobra reflexes, Stillman nodded grimly. Besides, Johnny's family is here. I don't think he'd like leaving them. That's why I'm not recommending his relocation, though that's the usual procedure in cases like this, Darl said. Most Cobras don't have the kind of close family support he does. It's a strong point in his favor. He stood up. I'll be leaving Horizon tomorrow morning, but I'll be within a few days' flight of here for the next month. If anything happens, I can be reached through the Dominion Governor General's office in Horizon City. Stillman rose from his chair. I trust the Central Committee will be trying to come up with some kind of solution to this problem. Darl met his gaze evenly. Mr. Stillman, the Committee is far more concerned about this situation than even you are. You see one minor frontier town. We see seventy worlds. If an answer exists, we'll find it. And what do we do in the meantime? Fraser asked heavily. Your best, of course. Good day to you. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Simon R. Green, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.